In our culture, we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the individual. In so doing, what we inadvertently are suggesting is that as individuals, as I was talking about before, we're separate. And so then our life becomes this process of being born and expressing this individuality for a certain number of years. And then after a certain number of years, we die. And the question for me was, what's the point? You know, why, why do all that? Why? And, and these days in this culture, that process is almost frantic. Attention spans are shorter. We're rushing from activity to activity. And then we're dying. Uh, for uh, perhaps uh, another animal looking at us, they might just shake their head and say, what are those human beings doing? They're racing around, creating chaos, chaos polluting the planet, and then they just die. What, what's the point of that? And together action is so powerful because it breaks down that I or that illusion of I. Zen master Bonhang, Mark Houghton, became a student of Zen master Sung San in 1976 and was an early member of the Cambridge Zen Center, where he lived for 14 years and was abbot for 12. He received Inca, or permission to teach, in 1990. Zen master Bonhang received transmission from Zen master Sung San in 2000. Today he is retired, but continues to serve as the guiding teacher of the Open Meadow Zen Group in Lexington, Mass., and as the co-guiding teacher of the Providence Zen Center. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. To access a free month of training, simply click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Mark, it's nice to have you here. Very nice to be here. You were my first teacher, very first teacher, when I started coming here in 1998. It's been quite a journey <laughs> with you. It's been mutual. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's always interesting uh, when people uh, suggest that uh, you're their teacher, because I've had many people that have come and said, you're my teacher, but the minute I say something they don't like, I'm no longer their teacher. Well, you've said many things I don't like. So, <laughs> well, then I'm honored to have you continue. <laughs> to continue. <laughs> Teachers. And you were an early resident. We're in the Cambridge Zen Center right now. You were an early resident here. We're actually in the room where you lived with your family, I think, which is my room now. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I lived here with my wife and two children. And actually, uh, we moved uh, several times before we got here. This is the second building uh, that we bought, but we used to rent in Cambridge uh, many years ago. So can you tell us a little bit about the early 
the early start. You met Sung San in 1976. You weren't a founding member of this place, but you were a very early member. Yes, it's kind of an interesting story because I was very interested in yoga early on before it was popular at all. And it had a lot of um, integrated, in this particular case, Sikh uh, religion teaching as a part of it. And as much as I loved the yoga, I struggled with the Sikhism. And uh, after a few years, I started to look around for other kinds of teaching uh, that seemed to uh, offer an insight uh, that I was looking for rather than a set a system to live by, I think is perhaps a way to say it. Um, <clears throat> so I was brought up a Quaker and uh, grew up attending Quaker meeting, meeting in Cambridge with my parents. And uh, I was uh, sitting there, and as you know, a Quaker meeting, when you're moved by the Holy Spirit, anyone in the congregation just stands up and speaks. And a gentleman stood up and uh, spoke about a Zen retreat he'd done, and how much he preferred the Quaker style of practice as opposed to Zen. He said the silence, the structure, uh, the um, together, what we call together action uh, was very difficult and he felt offered very little space for him to be himself. And after Quaker meeting, and I have to say, I attended Quaker meeting for 20 years and never talked to a single person about what they said. But after the meeting, I went straight up to him and I said, where did you do this? And he said, in Cambridge. And uh, he told me with whom. And then he asked me, why are you asking me all these questions? And I just said, because I want to do it. I want to try that. And so uh, that was my start at Cambridge Zen Center. And there were kind of an auspicious cast of characters, or I don't know if auspicious is the right word. Maybe it's a rowdy cast of characters at the time. Stephen Mitchell was around then. We had... Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, maybe John, also? John, John Kabat-Zinn was head Dharma teacher, I believe, when I first... He didn't live at the Zen Center, but he lived and came over quite often. Mm. Uh, we had Larry Rosenberg, who was living there, and Stephen Mitchell was living there, and followed by the name of uh, Richard Barsky, who was a fairly well-known Vipassana teacher. The challenge was that uh, Zen Master Sung San would come once a week, and then as he traveled more and more, he'd come less than that. Uh, and he would lead a retreat once a week, once a month. And uh, it was such a nice neighborhood that the neighbors uh, started to believe that everything that went wrong in the neighborhood was because the Zennies. Uh, they didn't mow their lawn and they didn't keep up the building. And uh, most of the people that lived there were unemployed. Um, it was kind of a hippie era. And what was the practice like? What was going on then that really drew you to the practice? and Or what did you see in it? The, the thing that I loved about the practice was that it had uh, a certain intensity. Uh, at that time, uh, there was regular practice in the morning, and then there was uh, sittings till 9 o'clock every night. Oh, wow. And everyone was expected to attend the full experience of being there. It wasn't how the Cambridge Zen Center is structured today. 
And so I love that. Zen Master Sung San had a tremendous amount of energy, but I had great difficulty understanding anything he said. Uh, and the uh, koan practice, I struggled with quite a lot. I, I couldn't quite get a sense of that quality of teaching. After working with it for many years, uh, I believe it's the clearest way to teach anyone because it helps breed a certain independence, a confidence, and an acceptance of not knowing. And those are three very important qualities of life. So just sort of unpacking that a little bit, what do you think was giving you such a hard time then? Was it just the lack of confidence or and you developed that through the practice or how, what, what were you too intellectual at the time or i wouldn't say i was too intellectual but it is interesting that as we grow up in north america mm -hmm. we're all taught that we're supposed to know and it's embedded in the culture i mean i remember being in the third grade and uh, the third grade teacher saying if you don't learn this stuff and know it when you kids get to the fourth grade, you're going to have a problem. Mm. And so there's this emphasis on knowledge, which is wonderful. It just doesn't resolve some of the bigger questions of life. Like, why are we on the planet? What happens when we die? What is the meaning of life? Uh, those kind of questions are hard to get in a book. So you moved into the Cambridge Zen Center at some point. After I'd been uh, coming over for six months or eight months, I moved into mm. Cambridge Zen Center, and a lot of the more senior folks uh, were developing other interests and starting to go their own way. And But the practice was strong, and I loved living there, and I loved the cooperative life. Mm -hmm. uh, I can see why the monastic life is very attractive to people. Mm -hmm. But you never felt like becoming a monastic. I never felt drawn to that. Mm -hmm. However, the community mm -hmm. and living in a community is a very uh, powerful practice and requires you to kind of look at your luggage oftentimes as you <laughs> shave and rub. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but yes, <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a really powerful teaching tool. Yes, it is. And it's, it's one that uh, is not so common anymore. I remember uh, back in the 70s, there were all kinds of spiritual communities around Cambridge. There was uh, Tibetan Dharmadhatu. There was a very well-known uh, yoga teacher uh, that had a group of 30 or 40 people living. There was a Cambridge Zen Center. There was yeah. uh, this... Uh, macrobiotic diet that was very powerful for 10 years uh, that there were a number of communities that worked with so though most of those communities have disappeared uh, partly because having a common focus and living in communities hard work yeah it's on um, some levels it's much easier um right all of the duties are shared all of that you know it becomes cheaper to live, all of these things, it, that part becomes easier, but then dealing with your karma and dealing with other people's karma. That's right. Yeah, very hard. It's, it's constant exposure to opportunities with skillful means. <laughs> I, I just laugh because like, obviously right now I live with, you know, there's 20 people in the main house and 30-something right. 30, 30 total here. And... 
It's great. <laughs> it's great. It is great. Actually. Not, it's not easy, but it's great. And there's, you know, how many things in our life that are very easy uh, yeah. give us a kind of fulfillment and personal growth. Yeah. And I sort of outside of this space, I hear a lot of people talk about sort of the great interconnection of being and all of these, uh, you know, how we're all connected. But uh, you go a little further with those people and you find out very quickly they have a hard time living with other people. They want to talk about the interconnection on a abstract level, but as soon as they have to actually share space with another human being other than, you know, their partner, uh, it becomes incredibly difficult. I would say even with a partner. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, with a partner, you're invested in sort of this love right. relationship. You're, you're both supposed to be invested. Yeah. At the same time, if you're, uh, if you're living in a community and you're invested in the practice. And for me, the practice was uh, a tremendous gift in my life. Right. And it was something I placed at a higher priority than almost anything else for many mm -hmm. years. And so people would come and go and sometimes uh, it would work and sometimes it wouldn't and sometimes would leave, people would leave angry and sometimes people would feel uh, that they just loved and adored the place. and. All that's emotions, and as you know, emotions are changing all the time. Mm -hmm. That's their nature. Mm -hmm. And ideas are wonderful, but they really don't have much substance to them. You know, one action is worth 10,000 ideas. Mm -hmm. And the Zen Center requires action. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they think of the, the word practice and how it relates to Zen, they... They imagine someone sitting on a cushion or they imagine someone chanting or, or perhaps even bowing, but they don't necessarily think about the together action of holding a community together and living together, which really is a, a practice of like being right here, being with other people. That's correct. Yeah. The, the gift of sitting is fabulous, is very personal. And it's very insightful. The practice of functioning in the world is accepting the world as a part of yourself. That means making an effort to include other people as an aspect of your life. There's nowhere that hits you in the face quite like living in a community. And uh, it's so challenging that... Uh, I know many years ago we had a group uh, that lived at the Cambridge Zen Center. And people always move in and out in groups for some reason, because human beings are tribal. We just had a group leave. It was like five people left. Yeah, it's like a tribe, you know? <laughs> and uh, we had a group of people, I think there were about 10 of us living there, eight of us living there, and five moved out. Mm. And um, they wanted to get their own space and do their own practice, but have no structure. Mm -hmm. and uh, just lived together because they were all very good friends. And needless to say, uh, the stuff comes up, the undigested stuff comes up, and uh, it was very hard for the community to hold together. Mm -hmm. And I think they lasted a year and uh, dissolved. Mm. Uh, Cambridge Zen Center has been around, what, 35 or 40 years now, and it has a quality of 
substance to it, partly because people are practicing together and they're working on themselves and they're growing. And folks notice that when they come by. Mm -hmm. I had this moment the other day where I was thinking about a person here who I don't like very much. And, um, you know, when you finish chanting, when you're leading chanting here, you, after you put up the Moktok and you close mm -hmm. the altar, you go and you collect the chanting books. And I realized I, every time I get to this person, you know, this person still uses a chanting book and I, uh, you know, typically you bow and you accept it with both hands and this thing. And I was just walking by and just taking it with one hand and just <laughs> like not just being like, oh, I just do not like you. I, I think I'll, I have all sorts of ideas about you. And this person has all sorts of ideas about me. And, um, and I, I had this moment the other day where I was like, oh my gosh, this is how I'm moving through the world. It's not the entirety of my movement through the world, but this is certainly part of it. I am not accepting this book with both hands from this person who's here trying to practice, whether I, you know, I have questions, you know, I have all sorts of ideas about that person's sincerity and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, from their perspective, they're here trying to practice sincerely. And um, yeah, it was really kind of a moment. So, so what I hear you saying is that basically the formality of Zen practice and the forms that we use at the Zen Center, they're like holding up a mirror. Mm -hmm. And you get to see some stuff that you might not get to see if we were a little sloppier and just changed our situation when we got uncomfortable. Entirely. The form is empty. But everything I was putting into the form, I mean, right. I, was you get reflected. I was stuffing it full of meaning. <laughs> so, the, you know, we had a... Um, Maha Gosananda. Oh, yeah. I loved him. Who is a very famous uh, Cambodian teacher. Uh, but he used to talk a lot about world peace. Mm. And he always started with the individual. And he would say, uh, uh, oftentimes, if we, were asked if, if we were asked to give a short talk, he would say, essentially, if we can be comfortable and clear and honest with ourselves, we can be peaceful with ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we can be honest and open and clear with our friends and neighbors, then we can have a peaceful community. If we can be honest and open, loving and caring with our city, we have a peaceful city. And if we do it as a race, we have a peaceful planet. Mm -hmm. And the quality of that is essentially, where are you going to start? You know, we're going to race around trying to fix things when we can't live them? Or do we make it a combined effort of doing what we can at the same time, never forgetting about our own inside job and the luggage that we're carrying? In the, in the uh, purest form... Uh, meditation is largely about flexibility. How flexible can we really be? How invested are we in our own opinions? And how open are we to really hearing other people's opinions and ideas and making an effort to be flexible with that? It's hard work, but it's world peace. Mm -hmm. 
So I have a memory of uh, the two of us. I this was the you know the the last time I lived here, which was uh, you know two thousand and two thousand and three, and the first two years I I really loved living here, and the last sort of half year I was just like, mm. <laughs> that's when that's when it was probably most helpful. The last half year, well. <laughs> I'll tell you, I you know this this is one of those memories from those two and a half years that really stands out. So I was kind of avoiding practice, and I was trying to you know sneak in and out of the house when teachers weren't around. And and there was a retreat happening. You were leading a retreat here, and I was skipping the retreat. And uh, you know I'm sure I had some sort of excuse. Or, you know I was in school at the time, and I had uh, you know I'm, I was very busy. <laughs> and um, and so I was coming back into the house. Because I was sure you were, you, you had left by this point, and um, so I was going to be able to sneak back into the house. And I wasn't going to have to see you. Oh, I'm not that bad. <laughs> no, no, it was for me. It was my <laughs> I own. I, you know, I knew I knew what I was doing, and so I'm coming in the front steps, and it is like five or six o'clock on a Sunday, and all of a sudden you come walking out the front door, and I was like. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I was just like, hey, how was the retreat? And you went, it's over. And then you just kept walking. <laughs> and it was actually a really important moment for my uh, practice. And, you know, people listening to this probably won't, it won't land for them in the same way, but they will have had those moments if they're practitioners where you hear something and you understand what that person, like what, what that moment is. And um, it's over, has stayed with me for a long time. Like, yeah, that retreat is past. Like you're not, we're not there. We're here right now. And I'm wondering if there are points during your time here or your time with Zen Master Sung San where the practice opened up for you and Maybe it was an affirmation of the path you were on, or yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that we all have moments like that, and I'm glad that I got to be a part of that moment for you. <laughs> uh, but uh, Zen Master Sung San's English was very limited, mm -hmm. and so he just used the same phrases over and over again. Only go straight, put it down, don't attach to anything, make something, have something, that kind of thing commentary he offered and you'd hear him say these things over and over again and then suddenly he'd say at one time after you'd heard it ten thousand and somehow it would go in and it would be wow you know that's mm -hmm. what am i doing you know i'll, I'll tell you a, a interesting story i had the uh, opportunity to uh, early on uh, to do a hundred day solo retreat mm-hmm and so uh, I went up to Maine, and I was just in this little unheated cabin and uh, burned wood when it got cold, but fortunately a lot of it was in the spring and the summer. The bugs were horrendous. Mm. Uh, first we had black fly season, and then we had mosquito season. And uh, every day I would eat exactly the same thing three times a day, this 12-grain rice mix. I'd eat one, three quarters of a cup of it three times a day. That's all I ate. Wow. And a few raisins and a few nuts and a vitamin. But um, I was reading Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. I read 
which is one of Zen Master Sung San's books, and I read one excerpt from it. It was the only book he had out then, uh, every day. I think there are a hundred in there. And about the 60th day, there's a story in there about uh, a young man that's uh, practicing really hard, and he goes to see his teacher, and his teacher yells at him and says, who is it that's dragging around this corpse? Mm -hmm. And I always thought that that was kind of this uh, cute thing to say and kind of shakes you up a little bit. But when I read it uh, on the 60th or 70th day, it shattered my whole world. It was like unbelievably powerful, mm. you know, because suddenly I recognized that this body was just dragging itself through this hundred days. And what was that all about? And it had, uh, it had a huge influence on me for the whole rest of the retreat. Just that one phrase. And kept coming up again and again and again. What am I dragging around? Who is it that's dragging this thing around? What am I? So uh, we, all, we all have those experiences. And it's interesting how you can hear them over and over again, but it only takes one time at just the right time uh, to shake us up and remind us why we're here. So you're a co-guiding teacher at Providence Zen Center, and which is another residential community. Yes. And you're the guiding teacher of Open Meadow, mm -hmm. which is out in Lexington. And I'm wondering if there's some dimension of how you're, you work with students that you think is particularly important for students to get in there as they're working on their practice or thinking about their practice. Open Meadow is very different because it's not residential. Mm -hmm. So the only people that come to Open Meadow to meditate are people that want to be there for the meditation. Mm -hmm. um, that's wonderful. However, it's not nearly as impactful as going to meditation practice when you don't feel like being there. <laughs> yeah. And, and having the requirements of the house and the community be such that you have to question the value structure you've created for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, in Providence Zen Center, my sense is that this practice is a lot about learning to have confidence learning to be able to trust yourself, having that integrated with the flexibility of approach in life, and a part of that flexibility being an open question mark, that we really don't know what's going on. And that should be a prominent thing in our life, not something that gets buried underneath the rubbish of daily activity, goals, hopes, dreams, all the stuff. And so in teaching people, I don't really want to uh, give answers or offer um, teaching. Uh, what I want people to do is uncover it for themselves mm -hmm. and become independent in themselves and believe in themselves. Yeah, I actually hear you say that a lot. When I, when I think about your teaching in particular, whether you think you have a teaching or not, but how you move through the world and how you relate to people and how you tell them about the, the story of Zen, the practice of Zen, right? Is there so much of it, to me anyway, is believing in yourself. Go in and, go in and explore 
what do you find? Believe in yourself. Yes, uh, that's a, uh, but what is self? Well, um, you know, hmm. what is self? Uh, in other words, we're infinite in time and space. We are not separate from the universe that we live in. We're a part of it. We're part of each other. In fact, uh, we are each other. And so uh, understanding yourself is uh, almost like uh, getting in a river and letting the current take you, whereas much of our time is being in a river and trying to manipulate the river to get what we want. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so rivers are hard to manipulate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been fighting and it's not been doing much good. We all fight. Uh, yeah. But that's, as we were talking about earlier, that's the power of community. Yeah. The community here at the Zen Center is like a river of energy, and the practice is like a river, and you try to fight that river or manipulate it to get what I want, and it doesn't work real well. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great teaching, much more powerful than I'm going to meditate when I feel like it. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's... When you and I really started this podcast, I don't know, about a year ago, just as an idea. Well, you started. I well, <laughs> we sat down and worked it out. Um, yes. At a coffee shop. Yes, I recall. And the idea at the time was, how do we let people know about the Providence Zen Center? Because it's, it's really like this jewel 25 minutes outside of Providence in Cumberland, Rhode Island, where you can go and practice. And there are some places that are quite famous where people can go and practice, sort of Tassajar or Green Gulch or something like that. We came up with this idea of the podcast to let people know about it. And there is really something incredibly powerful about the Providence Zen Center, different, very different than here, which is a sort of urban community and you have a lot of people coming in because they like to live in Cambridge. But Providence, it's, you know, you're there for a different set of reasons. Uh, Providence is grounded in practice mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a powerful place to live. And as we were talking before, it's not an easy place to live. Mm -hmm. But if you're really in growing, interested in growing as a spiritual person mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a great place to say, I'm going to live there for two years mm -hmm. and just try 100%. And uh, so, yes. And the other gift of Providence is they have some long retreats there. So up to 90 days. Right. And in those retreats, just like most Zen retreats of any tradition, they break down your small self. Yeah. And you have to live as a group. I had a friend who became a monk, a monastic, and he went to Korea for his monastic training. And he started with a, I don't know, a 60-day retreat or something like that. And I talked to him afterwards. I said, how was it? He said, it was, it was the most powerful retreat I ever did. And I said, oh, you did a lot of sitting or practice? Or you did midnight practice? And he said, no, we didn't do that much sitting at all. He said, but I was in training with uh, 14 other people, and we did exactly the same thing as each other every moment of the day. We got up at the same time. We brushed our teeth at the same time. We used the bathroom at the same time. 
We went to the dining room at the same time. We ate at the same time. There was no, um, what we would call in this country, personal space to relax. It was just let go of I, my, me over and over again. And uh, initially that's quite hard because the mind loves its ideas. But if we immerse ourselves in that, we find as human beings tremendous freedom and flexibility because we don't have to attach to our ideas anymore. So that's uh, Providence Zen Center isn't quite intensive like that, but Kyolche or a long retreat, they're pretty scheduled. And you really need to say, okay, I'm going to give this 100% and look into myself and at the same time support the group. Now, those aren't two different things. They're actually the same thing. But as human beings, we don't recognize that. Sort of around the school, we hear, you know, I never met Zen Master Sung San. He was alive when I, you know, I started practicing, but mm -hmm. I, I never actually met him. Um, so I only have these sort of secondhand stories and um, the teachings just as they're passed down. But I think the one that I hear, you know, one of the sort of the top five anyway, is this together action teaching. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about why that is such an important part of this school and um, how you think it influences us as practitioners. And I, and I only add that because I think very often we think about the pursuit of meditation or the, the pursuit of, uh, you know, what we're trying to do in this, whatever we call this, as a very individualistic. And, and yet there's this constant, within the school anyway, a constant push towards together action. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit. Uh, sure. Uh, in our culture, we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the individual. And in so doing, what we inadvertently are suggesting is that as individuals, as I was talking about before, we're separate. Mm -hmm. And so then our life becomes this process of being born and expressing this individuality for a certain number of years mm -hmm. uh, where we're holding other things separate. We're not integrated with them. And then after a certain number of years, we die. And the question for me was, what's the point? You know, what, why, why do all that? Why? And, and these days in this culture, that process is almost frantic. Attention spans are shorter. We're rushing from activity to activity. And then we're dying. Uh, for uh, perhaps uh, another animal looking at us, they might just shake their head and say, what are those human beings doing? They're racing around, creating chaos, chaos polluting the planet, and then they just die. What's the point of that? And together action is so powerful because it breaks down that I and, uh, or that illusion of I. And there's no greater gift we could give to each other than not, it's not that the I isn't there, 
It's that we don't have to attach to it. And there's no better gift in meditation than being able to be flexible with this I, my, me. So that uh, when we see someone who's hungry, we can stop and help them eat. When we see somebody who's tired, we can offer them a place to rest. When we see a political situation that's unhealthy, we have time to stop and say, this isn't a good idea. And uh, so for me, together action is largely means, can we be awake? Awake enough so we're not controlled by our own opinions, that we're able to see the moment and engage in the moment and flow with the river that we find ourselves in. Zen practice has a quality of being boring. And in our life, we have a tendency to run from one thing that we find exciting or intriguing to another. And we kind of experience it for a while, and then we lose interest and go try something else. And so if there's one gift that Zen practice offers, it's the ability to settle into one thing, whether it's boring, interesting, tension building, relaxing, and just settle in and experience it so that we're seeing ourselves against a mirror rather than constantly trying to change the mirror, we can look at ourselves and become more open and loving in our own being. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Von Hang, Mark Houghton, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about short and long-term residents at the Providence Zen Center by visiting providencezen.org. You can also find information for their short and long-term retreats there. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.